0: I'm going to say I'm not tooting my horn let me just say everybody has that one baseball moment my one baseball moment was we were uh, pitching against Miami Dade Community College and a trip to Florida they were good and I had a great fastball but I had some control problems early on so I walked I, I walked a guy and I picked him off and I walked the next guy and I picked him off <laughs> I walk the next guy, and I hear their coach yelling, Stay on the bag! Stay! <laughs> right? I picked him off. I picked off three in a row, and at the end of the game, my coach is over there talking to somebody. Well, there was a scout there that was scouting some a couple guys from Miami-Dade, and he said that he loved our catcher. And our catcher actually was uh, scouted, was, was going to go to double-A. Um, he was scouted by a double-A guy to, for the Reds. But in passing, he said, Hey, tell that left-handed pitcher. That's the best move I've ever seen to a first base from a left-handed pitcher. Really? That's what he said. I was so stoked, man. It was awesome.
1: Hey, you could have been like the guy that bring it out of the bullpen. I know.
0: And then in following up that story, I told that story to Mike Anderson, our old baseball coach. And I told him in a, uh, a tournament at Warren Wilson College, I hit 95 on a radar gun in the fifth inning. And I had it verified by my outfielder and my third baseman. And uh, he goes, you think you can still hit that? And I go, oh, I'm pretty good shape. This is when I'm still out on the road and we we're playing baseball. I said, I don't know, i like high 80s maybe. I still got, I mean, we were out throwing the other day. I was throwing a P pretty good. Come on out to practice. Throw some bad practice. Went out to bad practice. All of a sudden... You know, I got these, I got flip flops on. He goes, Hey, let's hit the gun. Let's see what you can do on the gun. I said, All right, let's do it. So we're making bets what I can hit on the gun. So I did about four or five warm up tosses, and then I, you know, I'm warming up, just like a pitcher, warming up. I go, All right, let's go, get the gun on. Right? It was a strike. I'm like, Oh, dude. I go, That's got to be 80. I mean, (laughs) It was my first pitch, but that's got to be mid-80. I mean, I fired it. He just has got the radar and he goes, 58. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious, 58.
1: Welcome to where I come from podcast devoted to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. We're kicking off season three with a special guest, Nebraska native and world-class comedian Dan Whitney, aka Larry the Cable Guy. We talked about buying pigs at a sale barn in Pawnee City, listening to Lyle Bremser call Husker games on the radio, playing golf with Charles Barkley and Johnny Miller, the origin of Larry the Cable Guy and
0: his all-time favorite joke. I was the only kid in fourth grade that had a bank account with about 2,800 bucks in it. I go, hey Charles, I'll bet you a $1,000 that dude's from Apopka, Florida. I have this awesome sweet box and my kids could care less if they went to the game or not. Oh, that freaking puts, puts an arrow right through my heart. If this joke's not getting the response it's supposed to get, it goes back to the minor leagues for a little bit more tweaking. <laughs> Sometimes the joke, all it takes for that joke to take off is changes order in the lineup. This is where I come from.
1: One coach to save your farm, Bill Callahan or Mike Riley, who are you trusting?
0: To save my farm? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, many Christmas uh, Mike Riley Mike Riley Just because of the good guy mentality he had Didn't
1: Callahan live around here?
0: He did, he lived right down the road Yeah, I like Bill Callahan Look, I know Callahan did a horrible job here And he ruined <laughs> our football program But as far as a human being I thought he was a really nice guy
1: One athletic director to be your tour manager John
0: Eichhorst or Steve Peterson? Peterson. Peterson? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Peterson.
1: Better comedian, better potential comedian, Tom Osborne or Bo Polini? Tom Osborne. Really?
0: Oh, coach is funny, man. Oh, coach is hilarious. Yeah, I was just with him the other day. We went out to eat. And uh, I find coach to be really funny.
1: He's 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 very dry but it's there my
0: favorite thing coach ever said was when Matt Davidson we were at something where were we at we were at something and coach went up and goes look at yo know, Matt bless his heart got his own radio show he's got all this money coming in from one play and you know what, I'll be honest It didn't even run he didn't even run the right route <laughs> 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 so funny <laughs> uh, wait,
1: what do you think of I say West Coast
0: offense uh, ruin our football program. <laughs> <laughs> We're Nebraska. We don't do West Coast offense.
1: When is it okay? And I, I, I sort of mean this seriously. When is it okay to make a punchline of your football program?
0: Like, uh, when is it okay? Now it's okay. It was, but,
1: but you were battling with this last fall. I think a lot of Husker fans were like, <laughs> okay, how do I get through this? Do I, ha, how do I laugh at it, you know?
0: I think that, look, I was hammering, I was sending out hammering tweets during, this, during the game. Right. When you real, I think when you realize, look, Nebraska has something special. The Nebraska football program and is special to people from Nebraska. It's, it's special. It's the one bond we all have in common. Take away politics, because not everybody agrees on politics. Not everybody is going to agree on religion. Not every, but we all agreed. It was the one thing the whole state agreed on. We love our football team because it represents Nebraska. It represents us. We all grew up here. And you know, the, majority of, the majority of Nebraska is small towns, right. a thousand and under. And we all grew up a certain way. And we're all very close in that way. And it pulled everybody together. You'd walk into the airport. You go to an airport somewhere in Chicago and you're traveling somewhere. You see someone with a Nebraska hat, a Nebraska jacket. You make a beeline over there. Go big red. Hey, man, how are we from? I'm from, oh, no kids. Hey, Knuckles. You know what I mean? Everybody was a friend. So that, that's the one thing that pulled all of us together. And when you saw it being ruined and when you saw people come in here that had no clue about Nebraska football or the traditions of Nebraska football. It angered you because you knew they were going down the wrong. It's like when you're watching, you're watching, uh, your, your, a friend of yours go down the wrong road. You want to say something, you don't want to say. You want to stay out of it. Hopefully, somebody'll they'll turn, they'll realize their bad deeds, and they'll snap out of it because you don't want to really get involved or be. You know what I mean. But at some point, you got to go, dude, what are you doing? Straighten up. You're ruining your life. Do you not? Look at this example. Look what he did. Look at his life. Do you want to go down that same road? You wanted to do that. And I think it got to the point where everybody was like, that's it. I've had it. I I got to that point.
1: And then you can laugh at
0: it? Yeah, and then you can laugh at it. (laughs) I mean, if you don't laugh at it you're gonna go nuts so you gotta make a joke about it you gotta do something you wanna make it's not the kids fault so you wanna make sure you're not railing on the kids but they're adults they're 40
1: (laughs) I remember I remember when Nebraska 2004 Nebraska went to Texas Tech and they gave up seven. yes I remember it and they gave up like it was like 49 over the in in a span of like 12 minutes yes and I remember being at a party with some friends and for the first time in my life, everybody was just laughing at it. Like, was just laughing All right. at Nebraska football. Yeah. You
0: have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's too, it's too hard on you if you don't. <laughs> it really is. It's too hard on you. I was on my tour bus about to do a show. And I forget where I was at. But I was on the tour bus and I watched those, those, those last horrific five minutes. And I was just I was in disbelief that Nebraska, this is Nebraska, and then I think the same thing happened. I think somebody said something. We started laughing about it, and it was basically oh this is this something's got to be done. This, but all you can do is laugh about it. You know it's like Jeff always says, and I agree that God gave us the gift of humor because that we're our lives sometimes are pressure cookers, and you gotta release the valve to get some of that stuff out of there. And that's what humor does. You know, oh, I just can't handle this team. There's a couple of jokes to like calm you down a little bit. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. It's,
1: it's, and it's funny how comedy, I mean, it's some of the funniest moments, I mean, will happen at a funeral or a- Totally, you know, I, I've
0: laughed at every funeral I've been to. <laughs> I really have.
1: But it's just you probably get some of that from your church experience. Yeah, like your dad being a minister. I mean, you find humor in. You
0: find it in everything. God, that's why we have humor. God made us. That's we laugh. He has a sense of humor. He laughs. He wants us to laugh. He knows what life is like. He. That's why we laugh. We have to. We can't be so serious about everything, or you're gonna go nuts. I feel sorry for people that before they have to pick apart. You tell a joke, they have to look around to make sure it's okay to laugh. They have to analyze the joke to make sure that it's not offensive. They have to, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a joke. joke. That's why we have fart jokes. That's why, yes, that's why God invented farts. <laughs> that is why. No, that's true. That's why you laugh at that. Hey, look. We were about to, we were just starting that uh, Skins game in Branson. All the people are there. They're all up on the rocks. They're all about ready to watch this first tee off. It's Austin Dillon. Um, Lee Trevino's there. Um, I'm standing right here. Johnny Miller's there. Um, Johnny Morris, the whole thing. And just before he's about to hit, I go, sorry about that. Every single person, including Johnny Miller, who everybody thinks is so, were belly laughing, and he backed away from the putt. But I mean, the, I mean, the fart jokes are hilarious, and you'll never be too old and to you know not like a sometimes, fart joke. Ki-
1: sometimes kids are the best judges. Yeah. You know, and it, what you get your kids to laugh at is, you know, that's when the yeah, uh, that's when you know it's real.
0: Exactly. That's why whenever I do movies, I try to put a couple fart jokes in every one of them because I know at least the kids are going to think it's funny. <laughs> but yeah, but going back to the Nebraska football team, uh, yeah, you, you don't want to make sure that you, you, uh, you know, you don't want to hammer or make jokes about the team. The team is trying, you know, the, the team is only as good as the coaches that are coaching them. It's not their fault. We're Nebraska. We got good talent. If they're not winning, and they're giving up, it's a mentality that they've been taught by the coaches. So all jokes are open. Um, you have to. People have to laugh about it, so they don't go out and they don't punch their vehicles and break windows and <laughs> smash their TVs. So I'd rather have somebody do a joke and laugh about it than create violence. Have you met Scott Ross? <laughs> I have. I've known Scott for a long time. Really? Yeah. Scott used to come to my shows. Really? Um, came to, uh, down to Florida when I was out uh, doing uh, shows up in Portland. Yeah, Scott. I think Scott's come out to five or six shows. Came up to see me at Funny Bone back when he was a player. Um, so I've known Scott ever since he was a player.
1: you have any advice for
0: him? Uh, there's no advice I can give Scott because he's already good at what he does. He's learned from the best. Look, This is the reason why I like the Scott Frost hires, not because he's a friend of mine, not because he's a former player and he knows the culture, which he does. Everybody wanted him. He's finally a coach that other people wanted. He's that coach that Florida used to get, and we go, man, how come we can't get a guy like that? Guess what? We got a guy like that. I think Scott Frost is a 30 year hire. I think he's a Tom Osborne hire. Um, He inherited a mess. And I think that people will have leeway with Scott. I think everybody knows this is going to be a tough first year. I think everybody knows the second year is going to be a little better. It's still going to be tough. But I think in the third and the fourth and the fifth year, I think we're going to see Nebraska football the way it's supposed to be played. Are we going to go undefeated every year? Well, there's a hard feat to do. Are we going to, are we going to play? our teams going to finally come to Lincoln and go, Crap. This is going to be a tough game. We're going to Lincoln. Yeah. It's no longer going to come to Lincoln and go, ah, we're going to win this one. People aren't going to do what we used to do to Kansas. Right. Well, we're going to, oh, we had Kansas this week. Oh, we'll win that game. It's not going to happen And to you me. know
1: what's weird? When that moment happens, uh, hopefully it will for Nebraska's sake, you'll, you'll introduce it to your kids and you'll be like, this is what it used to be like.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're the sports B writer. Don't you think that's pretty much the case?
1: Well, I think there's a whole... Like, I've got an 8-year-old, and he's... It's just depressing watching him experience Nebraska football.
0: Totally depressing. Let me tell you something. When my kids go to the game with their cousins from Wisconsin, and they want to wear the Wisconsin stuff, it kills me. The fact that I grew up like I did, and I never got to go to a game, and I was such a fan, and now I have the best sweet box, other than the Ricketts family... Right who have the same one I got just on the other end I have this awesome sweet box and my kids could care less if they went to the game or not oh that freaking puts, puts an arrow right through my heart Yeah. Because, but you're right none of these kids have ever experienced what we went through and I try to tell my kids all the time do you kids realize from the time that I was 5 6 years old till the time that I was 42 years old we were ranked in the top 10 every year. <laughs> they can't even, right. affab- they have no idea what that's I know. like. I know, Quick aside,
1: Larry recently got back from Branson, where he played and won a golf
0: pro-am with the sport's biggest legends. That's uh, Larry Mize. Yeah. Gary, Gary uh, Blair. Blair. Jack Nicholas, Johnny Miller, Dick something. Lee Trevino. Oh, yeah, Lee Trevino. Oh, that's right, Lee Travino. <laughs> a Dick something's up there. But me and Jenny Miller, we won it. Two under. And here's the best picture of the whole thing. Oh,
1: my gosh. Have how, you ever had a photo with him before? How
0: cool is that? Jack Nicholson. I've met Jack a couple of times. Like, I do his tournament down at the Haunted the Class, okay. down at West Palm. So I was. I, I did some stuff with him down there, but this is the first time he's ever taken a picture like that with me, where he's pointing at me, where I'm doing <laughs> that, and then uh, look at the size of these stinking trophies we won. Where's it at? Hold on. <laughs> look at those things. Oh my gosh! Five
1: hundred pounds. It it's five hundred pounds.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Are you bringing it back here?
0: <laughs> yeah, I told. There was an article about it. It was uh, they they interviewed me and they said. Uh, they go, uh, man, that's a nice trophy. What are you going to do with it? I said, well, first got to tell my wife <laughs> that I got it. <laughs> and I don't think she's going to let me put it in the living room. So, But I, here's the problem. You need 18 people to lift it. Wow. And so they're going to have to ship it because it's not going to fit in anything I got. Right. And uh, they took it out to the plane. They literally were going were gonna to bring it up on the plane. It wouldn't fit through the doorway of the plane. So they have to ship it. So... Winning this tournament is going to cost us $2,000 in freight just to get that thing back to the house. So I told Johnny Miller, I go, we should have missed that last putt. Then we wouldn't have to worry about these trophies. It's a beautiful trophy.
1: Though. Did you both get
0: one? Yeah, you got one, I got one. Wow. It was the craziest thing. And then ever since then, I've golfed now uh, twice since I've been back. I shot an 85 at Yankee Hill. I shot an 89 yesterday at uh, Firethorn. And only shot an 89 because uh, I missed my putts. I had, on the front nine at Firethorn, I had six birdie shots. Really? Mm-hmm. Missed every one of them.
1: <laughs> hey, that's the way the pros do it, though. Hit the ball in the middle of the green. Yeah. Tap so,
0: I was stoked, but it's a matter of slowing your swing down. You know, I used to hate golf. Hated it with a passion. I remember we'd be out on tour, and I'd come on the bus, my opening act, be watching the U.S. Open. And I'm like, what are you what are you doing? Nobody watches golf. Put the game on. But it's the US Open. I don't care what it is. I hate this golf stupid. You know, so I would never watch golf and then man I Boo Weekly, I ran into Boo Weekly at a golf tournament and he got me a set of clubs. You got hooked. I got hooked. Yeah.
1: You know, there's a little bit of uh... about
0: four and a half million into it and it's like an expensive habit.
1: Now you're doing the celebrity, you know, you're doing the, uh, you know, the pro-ams and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, what's been your favorite celebrity golf experience?
0: Man, you know what? I never, uh, I always say they're all fantastic because I don't want anybody to think that, right. that I think theirs is better. But they're, they're, they're all unique in their own way and i have been very blessed and fortunate to be asked to play in them. I mean, Pebble Beach is really special. Because everybody wants to play in it. And they only take like 30 people. It's like 30, 30 to 40 celebrities and people. I mean, and there's people like, you go, wow, I get invited to this. How awesome is this? And and it's really cool because it's like, you know, you're a fan favorite. You know, you can always tell when people like when you're there. You know, right. I always sign autographs. I never deny anybody. Make, you know, goof around. Uh, Players, Certain players will request you because they want a loose round. They want to play like this year was Keith Mitchell and Tom Lovelady. And I became really good friends with Keith Mitchell. You know, he was probably he might come and play my golf tournament. But he even said to me, he said, man, because I apologized to him a couple of stops because he was leading the thing. (laughs) There's like seven holes on Saturday. And then he started missing putts, and my fans are like, yeah, they're telling jokes, and they're making farts. You know, it's just ridiculous. And I told him, I said, Keith, I'm so sorry. You know, I try to tell these guys when you're hitting. He goes, no, that's why I request you. I play a lot better when I'm I'm relaxed. So if you do your thing, that's why I requested to play with you guys. So, you know, that's always fun. So um, uh, Pebble is just, it's Pebble Beach. And so it's just such a tradition out there. So that's super special. I love it. Um, the Lake Tahoe Celebrity Classic yeah, is they awesome. Get
1: huge, huge names in there.
0: She, they got big names in that thing. You can beat Charles Barkley too. I know, and Barkley's the best. You know, the first three years I played in it, I played with with Charlie. Oh really? And I think I'm the only guy that calls him Charlie. <laughs> Every time we see him, hey Charlie, you know, <laughs> and knew it was really cool. He said one night, I was like uh, total shock, you know. I'm well, NBA because I like. I, I'm not a big basketball fan, but I watched the NBA show right. with with Charlie yeah, and Shaq on it because I know both of those guys. I think they're a riot, so I watch it just because it's funny. And uh, they were talking about golf, and they asked him. I mean, you would always start who's your, who's a show. Who's a, who do you like to play with? Who's fun to play with? He goes. He said. Man, I love playing with my boy Larry, the cable guy. <laughs> and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me! How awesome is that? that is uh, so he's great. What's the uh, what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you
1: in a,
0: in a pro am? Oh man, the funniest thing that's happened in a pro am. There's so many things. Um, I think it was the time that uh, I was golfing with Kevin Nealon and Barkley, and Barkley hit was one of his worm burners, and he hit a duck right in the head <laughs> and it's in Tahoe it's California so you know everybody loves their animals you know uh, you know in Nebraska we shoot ducks right. <laughs> you know he hits this duck and it is just flopping around down there and uh, all of a sudden I see this cameraman run out there pick up the duck and start strangling the duck right because you know, the like... duck's dying so the duck is in major pain it's gonna die and you know all the other ducks are gonna come around and peck the crap out of it so it's gonna die so you got to put him out of his misery so he starts and you women are screaming what's he doing no stop it stop it and then there was another and then Charles Barkley said no ma'am he's got a he, that duck's gonna die he's in major pain I mean it's a horrible thing to just happen but he's you got to kill that duck or he's gonna it's, it's he's gonna be miserable stop it You know, and then all of a sudden I look. Well, it's not working. So he runs over to the lake and he starts drowning the duck. (laughs) Now, everybody's freaking out. I mean, just going nuts. And, you know, it's just different parts of the country. Some parts of the country, you you, you duck hunt. You know how to, you know, if an animal is, is... W- wounded or injured You gotta kill him right. You gotta put him Out of his misery. You gotta You know If you leave him there Other animals are gonna Peck at him And eat him and right. So you gotta do it So anyway This guy runs over Well it's the golf channel's Covering it So I said to Charles Barkley I go Hey Charles I'll bet you A thousand dollars That dude's from Apopka, Florida because <laughs> it's golf channels from Orlando. I go. I bet that dude's from Apopka is his big redneck part of Florida. I go. I guarantee you a thousand bucks, Charlie. That guy's from Apopka because that's something a guy from Apopka would do, right? So he starts laughing. We get down there. And he's in the water. I go. Hey, where are you from? He goes Apopka, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Charlie. I got a thousand. True story. <laughs> <laughs> and so he drowned a duck, but that was pretty crazy. They still talk about that in Tahoe, that was a big story. Oh, man. I hit a guy in the head one time, and I felt horrible, and he came up hugged me and said, man, I've done it, don't feel bad. They go, they gotta move these people back. I don't know why, don't they understand? We're M- amateurs. we're professionals. Then when they found out the guy was okay, and he's all good about it, Charlie goes, look at the bright side, you keep killing everybody. We ain't going to sign any more autographs, <laughs> you know. So. It's
1: got to be a little terrifying knowing how close those crowds uh, are, though.
0: You know, that's the thing. People always send you, like, people that get mad at you. because These people that are like, golf should be a certain rank. You know, that's the why, That's the reason why people don't play golf. Right. Because of those people. You know, golf shouldn't be played like this. Golf should be. Well, your sport's dying because of your attitude. right? You know. So um, uh, that's why I'm glad that guys like me like to play in it and are hooked on it because I think it's good for the sport. We're actually introducing other people like me into the sport. I love the sport of golf. It's great exercise, beautiful courses. It's fun. I mean... People think we're out there and, you know, we don't fix divots and we're, but that's not the fact. We love to play golf and we go by the golf rules and we do the whole thing. You know, we just have a different attitude about the game.
1: Is it nerve wracking though? I mean, I've played golf my entire life and I think I would be a little bit nervous about being, you know, Saturday at Pebble with a guy who's on the first page of the leaderboard and you're like, am I gonna step in his line? Am I gonna do something wrong? I mean, do you, do you worry about that? Yes,
0: you do. And w- the point that I was gonna make is people are like, uh, well, I could do that. I mean, I don't even know why he plays in these tournaments. He stinks. Well, I've always said the cameras put 10 strokes on you. <laughs> if you golf in the mid 80s, you're golfing in the mid 90s in these tournaments. Cause I remember Toby Keith, who's a good golfer, his first year at Pebble, he went, he couldn't even, he bent down to put his ball on the tee. He was shaking so bad. And we're all like, oh, man, Toby's nervous. His first shot, shanked it right into the crowd. And he's like an eight handicap. But there's just, I mean, if you think you're a good golfer, if you're an amateur and you think, oh, I could do that, I guarantee you, you will have a horrible shot. (laughs) Your first time ever at Pebble Beach with 2,000 people lined up waiting for you to hit. And then right next to you is... Bill Mickelson standing behind you. Right. I mean, it is nerve wracking. Now, I've done, I've done these, I've done a ton of these now, and it never, it's always nerve wracking. However, it's not as nerve wracking for me as it used to be because I'm used to it. Yeah. But yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's everybody's looking at you, and it's it's really hard. Is you know. There, I mean,
1: there, there's there is a parallel between comedians, performers in general, and athletes. And that ability to like play your best under pressure, you know. Right. I mean, you. I would imagine you kind of get an appreciation for just how athletes have to. Uh, it's one thing to be talented. It's another thing to be talented when everybody's watching you, right? Yeah
0: it it let it just shows you how good these golfers really are. Yeah. I mean, to be able to shoot a consistency in the mid sixties and high sixties every time you're out there with all those crowds and the pressure. I mean. I'm good at what I do. It's like what uh, Kid Rock said down at the at the Bass Pro Tournament this week. Somebody said, you you stink. You know, you're not a good golfer whatever. They called him out. He shanked one. He said, hey, bring a karaoke machine out here. I'll show you what I can do. You know, so we're good at what we do. We right. want him well, they've always said that athletes always want to be comedians, and comedians always want to be athletes, right. and that's pretty true. I mean, look at Shaq, look at Barkley; those guys want to be funny. You know, they would love to get on stage, and they're funny. Yeah, you know, but uh, th- that's just the way it is. I mean i I want to be I want to be really good at golf. I'm not going to be a professional golfer, never. But I think the thing that golf does or athletics does for guys like us like entertainers is we always strive to be our best in our field like I always every time I go on stage I want to be better than I was yesterday and I always challenge myself to do that and I think that's the cool thing about golf every day it gives me another challenge it gives me something to attain to well, try to get and better internal, at. It's
1: internal, too. Like, you can do it by yourself. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, you spend all your time in front of crowds and in front of people, and this is something you can go do by yourself and just, you know, challenge yourself. Yeah. Just you. Uh, it's a pretty good escape, too.
0: Oh, it totally is. And it is a challenge. It challenges me. <laughs> I like that challenge. It's just like when I was coming up through the ranks as a comedian. Uh, i would always take these gigs it didn't pay very much but i never knew who was going to be in the crowd and it was like a showcase set i i relished those because all right this is my i get five ten minutes to show what i can do yeah. and i knew i could do it
1: was there a time when you got good at performing under pressure? Like did you was that something that clicks at a certain point in your career? Yeah, you know. You always have it? Yeah,
0: you know what? I've always been funny. I've always had great timing. You know, my dad was a preacher. My yeah. dad my dad did a lot of things, but my dad had a temper on him. My dad was a sweetheart, but my dad also had a temper. So, uh, we had several family meetings. But I always knew for some reason I always was a funny, I was always funny. My whole family's funny, my dad was funny, my mom's funny, my brother's hilarious, my sister's funny. So there was, I always, but I always, I was the youngest. So I always could find a place to throw in something to Mm. calm it down, break the ice a little bit. So that was where I started developing timing. When to tell a joke, when not to tell a joke. Maybe I shouldn't do this joke. Maybe I should be, I just kind of developed it. Yeah. But when I was started doing standup, um, uh, the comedy corner in West Palm beach opened up and this is 1986, June of 1986. And me and my buddy, Tom Ryan were the first two comedians that were open micers to ever go there. And, um, uh, so we would always, uh, want stage time. And so, uh, the girl that ran at Colleen McGar who became one of my first managers, she would always. I go, Colleen, can I go up tonight? Can I get? Can I just do five minutes? And she goes, I can't. I got we got a second show, and I'll give you three minutes. Three minutes. Right. She goes, all right, go for three minutes. So I got to go up, do three minutes, and bring the opening act up. But in three, I only had three minutes, so I went to get my jokes in. So that's where I developed my fast, my one-liner style, because mm-hmm. I wanted to get as many jokes. I wasn't a storyteller. I've always been a one-liner type guy. I love the vaudeville acts, you know. I loved the Henny Youngman and Charlie Callis and uh, um, uh, 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 Sammy Shore. You know, I love those guys. So that's where I developed my timing. It was just quick, 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 quick. Uh, timing's so important in comedy. You know, you can have a really mediocre joke, but it's how you tell the joke and where you put the joke that makes it funny. You know, and the best compliment I ever got doing, I got two, okay, two of my favorite compliments. There was a guy in Vegas that used to interview comedians all the time. He was an old timer. And he passed away. And, uh, he, uh, his son gave the eulogy, but they wrote wrote in the paper what his son his son was talking about his dad, and he said, "But my dad was always out of all of his interviews. He was always a fan of the old time comedians and the vaudeville and the one liner guys, and he talked about some of his favorites. and He said." Uh, all the way up to my dad's latest favorite, carrying on the one-liner tradition, and that was Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, wow. And I was like, man, how cool is that? I mean, it was just something I read. It was a passing thing. It was kind of cool. Yeah. And then the other thing was Tony Orlando and I are really good friends, believe uh-huh. it or not. <laughs> Love Tony Orlando. He's like an adopted older brother. And he was in three, of all three of my Christmas specials as my co-host. But Tony called me up one day and said, and this was before Cosby got in all his trouble. Right. But uh, he said Cosby called him up one night and said, hey, Tony, turn it on, uh, Comedy Channel. He goes, look at this comedian. You ever seen this guy? And Tony really? goes, yeah, that's uh, my buddy. His real name's Dan Whitney. I and mean, he does this character, Leather the Cable Guy. He's a, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be doing this Christmas special. He's telling him about it. And he said, will you tell Dan Whitney. His timing is impeccable. (laughs) And I'm like, yes! It was the coolest thing. So little things like that keep you going. One thing that
1: I like about, one thing that always cracks me about yours is, you know, you'll have a punchline, and people will die, you know, they're dying, and then, like, three seconds later, there's, like, a second punchline that you're not ready for. And it's like... (laughs) like oh man, I didn't you know you see the first one coming kinda you don't see the
0: second and the third one coming. Right, yeah. You build on it and then you pop it, then you pop it and then ten minutes later you call back to one of the pops. Oh that is the greatest thing in comedy, that kind of stuff.
1: Are you a writer? Like I mean are you someone who sits down and, and
0: Yeah, oh totally. You know, when I did that's how I got started doing uh That's how Larry the Cable Guy came about, just as a radio character. It was all theater of the mind. And so I sat down every night and I wrote a a three-and-a-half-minute commentary for the radio station. Mm. I got thousands of them. I wrote thousands of them. And in those commentaries, I was able to pull one-liner jokes out and bring them to the stage. And that's how how the act was born.
1: So you would do it for radio stations before... I mean, you you do it in your in
0: your house and. Larry the cable guy started out just as a character I did on stage for three minutes, mm. and when then did it start? a buddy of mine. Nineteen, I started doing it on stage in around 1996, 95. but I didn't go full bore with it till around ninety seven. Um, just a real quick, I'll just shorten this as much as I could. I was uh, syndicated in Orlando. I was on a radio station in Tampa and was Tampa, Orlando. It was the only place you could hear me at the time. And a guy billed me and I'd been doing it since 1991 on the radio. Uh, I lived in West Palm beach at the time and, uh, I used to drive up to a radio station in Tampa, and then I'd stay the weekend, work my buddy's comedy club, the whole thing, you know. I did a bunch of characters for him, but later, the Cable Guy took off, but I didn't know it had taken off. Um, I heard people saying, get her done all over the place, and I knew that was my deal, so I went and got T-shirts made and caught that whole thing, you know. Right. So anyway, I go up to my buddy's club, Les McCurdy from Sarasota. He billed me one night, as Dan Whitney, a.k.a. Larry the Cable Guy from the Ron and Ron Radio Network. And I was a little upset because I had just left that radio station because they had cheated me on some t-shirt sales. And I wasn't getting paid to do the character. I'd been doing it for a couple of years. And so I left, and they put me on a station in Orlando, which syndicated me in Orlando, Tulsa, and Baltimore. Oh, wow. So now I go back to Tampa here about uh, six months later, and he bills me and puts that station on Well, you know what? If it helps him sell tickets. Not only to help him sell tickets, he sold out both shows in like an hour. Really? I went on stage, and I'm doing my act. And people are, you do that! You do And they start yelling stuff from the radio. So I dipped down in, and I started doing it. It was just my act I just slowed it down And the accent's not hard I mean I'm talking like A redneck all day long Because right. when I lived in Because I'm a You know I grew up on a pig farm So when I moved to Florida All the guys I hung out with Were all country kids From Florida And so I just dip down in the accent I finish And I'm signing autographs And I'm taking pictures There's nothing It was just a middle act And Les They clear the room And Les goes Man that was crazy He goes you think you can do your whole show like the character? I go, yeah, piece of cake. He goes, well, I'm going to take your name off and I'm just going to try something. Let's just put Larry the Cable Guy and see what happens. I said, all right. So I went and I changed. I put on what I drove over in. I drove over in a pair of (laughs) lace-up roper riding boots, cowboy uh, uh, riding boots. Uh, I think they were, uh, uh, they were uh, Ariats, I think. Um, I uh, had a pair of jeans, a cut off Nebraska t shirt, a NASCAR hat. And I went on stage. That's what I drove over in, in my 1984 Trans Am with T-tops. Oh, wow. And I drove over in that. So if that ain't redneck, I don't know what it is. And I went on stage for the first time as Larry the Cable Guy, and it killed. It killed. And so Les and I got to talk, and I said, Man, Les, if I get some more radio stations, I could promote this on the radio. And that's what I did. From then on I went on the road I finished out my dates as Larry, as Dan Whitney and I picked up radio stations cuz they all knew what I did it was a big thing on radio and they all said well we can't afford this we can't afford you and I said you don't even got to pay me <laughs> I said I guarantee I was so confident in it I said I guarantee you, you put me on for a month you'll get a sponsor to sponsor it truck company a mechanic and uh just so it pay, was
1: total grassroots
0: total <laughs> grassroots and I ended up with 27 radio stations, I called five. I called radio stations, not all 27. I think the most I did in one day was probably eight. But I called 27 radio stations every week. Wow. Five days a week for 13 years.
1: Really?
0: Yeah. And I became pro- the biggest comedy draw in the country. The two biggest comedy draws in the country at the time I was doing it were me and Rich Jenny. And uh, now some never heard of me, but I was I was probably in 35, sport, 35 states, I think, 37 states. Uh-huh. And then uh, and it just picked up. And that's when uh, Jeff and I had been friends forever. I met Jeff in 1986 at the Comedy Corner. We were both Atlanta Braves fans, so <laughs> we followed the Braves and the whole deal. And that's when Jeff called me and said, Hey, we want to try what you're doing on this blue-collar comedy thing we're doing. And that's when I went up and I auditioned for Blue Collar. I knew I was going to get it because my audition night was in Columbia, South Carolina, where I was on the radio. And I said, man, I think I sold 3,000 tickets myself. And so I got. that's when I got the gig. And so that it exposed me to more, obviously, bigger crowds. And that's, that's just when it took off.
1: Is it different doing it in front of 50 people in a club versus... 15,000 people in an arena yeah
0: totally you have to adjust your timing you have to focus on certain people in front of you Um, I'll tell you what when I first started doing um, uh, when I first started doing it we started in smaller theaters and uh, then we branched out so I could get used to it so I went out and we booked little thousand seaters then we started booking some 1500 seaters then it just got huge then we, I went straight from doing the smaller theaters to arenas I mean like that it was crazy a weird thing was I, I got Steve Martin's book on when he was a stand up and how he wish he would have appreciated it more but he was so but I looked at his date book he said this is when I knew I was blowing up and he goes and he printed his date book with the attendance pre-sales yeah. every one of them were the exact same arenas that I started out in, yeah. with almost the same identical numbers. So it was really cool seeing that book. It could have been my date book. Um, so we, but to get used to those, so we 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 started in the smaller theaters, and I just did a ton of them. You know, I did like six here, and then I did like five bigger ones. And I got used to it. You know, I, I, I would go up and i get used to where the room was and how to work it and do certain jokes a certain way. And uh, then to get ready for uh, the arenas, uh, we uh, started booking arenas. So we took, while well, we're booking, we took about uh, three months, four months, and I went out with Travis Trett. So they booked me with Travis because Travis was doing arenas. So uh, I'd go out with Travis Tritt and I'd do 20 minutes in front of Travis so I could get used to this big stage. So I'd come out and Travis was awesome, man. Travis took me under his wing and I think I did 17 shows with Travis. And then right after I did Travis, probably two weeks later, I was at the American Airlines Center in Dallas, Texas doing 14,000 people. Wow. Yeah. And that lasted, um, I think I'm the longest stand up right now. That's done arenas I think the only person right now that can break that Is uh, what the Jeff Dunham huh. Jeff Dunham now has been I think he's going on his fourth or fifth year of arenas I did Nine straight years Of nothing but arenas And
1: you were just doing like You were doing four or five a week weren't
0: you Oh yeah But as is everything else um, When you're an entertainer You always have to stay fresh, stay new, stay, you know, and you're never going to have the crowds that you did in the heyday. You know, my heyday, I'm still one of the top seven comedy draws in the country, but I'm not, you know, I'm not doing, you know, I always have about, you know, I always have between 25 and 3,700 fans that always want to come out and see me somewhere. You know, so that's that's perfect. Do
1: you, write Do you still write?
0: I still write. Yeah, I still write as much stuff. I always write it down, put it in my phone. and
1: You think of a joke just at random times?
0: Yeah, just, and like oh man, that's kind of funny, and I'll put it down in the thing, you know, and that's always fun. I'll tweet it out and see what kind of reaction. And Twitter I'm has gonna...
1: become interesting. It's like a... You're able to uh, share some of those one-liners like in real time. You know, you you don't just save them for a show. You can share them right away.
0: Yeah, I share them right away and I see what kind of response I get on them, you know. And then I got it it out there. So if anybody does that joke, they'll go, hey, you know, I tweeted that out two years ago. (laughs) You know, that's my joke. So that kind of helps you copyright your joke, too.
1: Did you, did it ever get weird, like... I've often wondered this about, you know, like Stephen Colbert too. Uh, When you you have sort of an alter ego, do you ever kind of miss, you know, people knowing the real Dan?
0: Um, not really. Your your friends and family always do, obviously. You know, I gotta tell you, I've never really taken myself so serious that I thought about it. I never really thought about it. I just figured this is my business. I'm a comedian. I like making people laugh. This makes me laugh. I love doing this as well. But, uh, you know, like when I'm in show mode, even off stage, I have my accent. I don't mean to. It's just that I just, you know, I've lived in the South 30, I lived in the South 36 years. Right. And it just, it just happens. It's just, you know, like I was on the phone the other day, my buddy Brad called. And I was just, it sounded like, Literally, the cable guy, the whole time I was talking to him. And I didn't do it on purpose. It's just, it happens. It's like when I go to Wisconsin. Within a week, if I'm golfing with my buddies from Wisconsin, next thing you know, hey, who wants to go in and get a pop? You know what I mean? I just pick it up. And I don't mean to. But I'm not, I think that's, that's a misconception. People think that because my accent lingers sometimes when I'm talking to friends and stuff especially if I meet somebody from the South or somebody that has an accent, it just comes out. I don't mean it to come out. It just does. Um, but I'm, if I'm not on stage, um, I'm pretty much myself. Yeah. You know, I, People think that I'm in character all the time. I'm not in character time. I think they mistake that sometimes when my accent comes out that I'm trying to be this character, but I'm not. It's just, you know, my life, most of my life, was lived in Florida, you know, so it's just, that's just the Florida coming out in me. I don't really...
1: you remember when you stumbled on Get Her Done?
0: Yeah, it was in 1991 when I called the radio station and I signed off and I said, all right, fella, get her done. That was it, huh? And they go, what's that mean? What? Get her done. <laughs> well, whatever you gotta do, get, get her done. I mean, it was just funny. I thought it was funny, you know? I don't so know.
1: That, that's not something that went back, like... No, I don't. Your childhood. No, you know, when I was a kid,
0: my grandpa used to say, let's get to getting and stuff like that. Maybe it came from that. I really don't know where it came from, but all I know is I said it and uh, I kept saying it and I kept saying it. So everybody that says it knows that that's what I said all the time. Um, So it's just one of those things that I said and just kept saying it and pounding it into everybody's head and it just kind of took off
1: have a really interesting childhood um, yeah Pawnee City Nebraska mm-hmm. born in 1963 uh, and, and your, your dad was he was a musician and a preacher yeah
0: he was a really good musician my dad was one of the last of the really good thumb pickers you know him and Steve Warner and mm. uh, he was really good and uh, but he got saved in a foxhole in Korea Really? He was in the korean war he was in the air force but i but uh got saved out there i don't know what he was doing in a foxhole he was a but you know he probably got shelled one night right they were at the base or whatever and i don't know the whole story but um he was a navigator and a fighter jet hmm. and uh but yeah so then he wanted to preach but when i was a kid he would he was also the guidance counselor at wymore high school <laughs> So my dad was a guidance counselor, Monday through Friday. Friday and Saturday nights, he played in a band called the Memphis Beats and they played at VFW Halls all across Nebraska. They were one of the best bands in Nebraska, the Memphis Beats. And then on Sunday, he preached in two churches. He preached at uh, Humboldt at the uh, Four Mile Congregational Church and then he preached at uh, Verdon at the Congregational Church in Verdon, so we did.
1: My dad's from Auburn. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you're
0: down from the so you know, you're down from the hip yeah, part, hit the, part the of hip part of
1: the rock roads of southeast Nebraska. Yeah, man,
0: we're down in the same part of the country. Yeah. So yeah, that's what he did. And then Saturdays it was spent at the at the Saturdays were spent uh on the farm, you know, we would make fence and the whole thing, stuff like that. You didn't
1: see him a whole lot. I mean he was just real busy. Oh yeah, he's gone a lot. But you traveled with him. Like when the band would go
0: across Nebraska? I would travel. Every now and then I'd go. I'd go up and uh, we'd go to some of these VFW things. I'd go up and, you know, we'd dance. I'd dance with the Buckmeyer girl, Becky Buckmeyer, and I (laughs) would dance (laughs) when I was a little kid. Every now and then I'd go up and I'd sing, uh, My name is Michael, I got a nickel.
1: Remember that song
0: (laughs) My name is Michael I I got a nickel I don't know who sang that song I'd get up and do that But yeah that was fun I didn't go a lot But I'd go every now and then He'd take us. Yeah
1: Uh, Your grandfather was a big influence
0: though My grandfather was?
1: Yeah right I mean he Ivan Oh man
0: No he wasn't my grandpa He was my adopted grandpa Oh I'm sorry Kenny Klepper Uh, Love the guy man Kenny Klepper just passed away In his 90's uh, he was my adopted grandpa. We lived next door to the sale barn, and uh, man, that was my life—grabbing my bullwhip and going over there and loading cattle trucks. I loved it, and uh, but yeah, he took me under his wing. He knew I liked it, and he and uh, he took me under his wing, and he actually bought me my first pigs when I first started raising pigs. He bought them for me. They were—I had to bottle feed them, and I kept them in the closet so my mom wouldn't see them. Really, and How I was bottle you? feeding them. I was probably five or six, <laughs> and I was bottle feeding them. And my mom found out about it because she started smelling the pigs, and so I had them to the point where they. I made a little place for them down by the barn, and then uh, I was the only kid in fourth grade that had a bank account with about twenty-eight hundred bucks in it, because after that. I at an early age, I could I, I knew the auctioneer. I, I mean, I knew what I learned. I was there all the time, so I could kind of tell. Kenny taught me how to listen to what they say, and then I just went down to, and I built my I built pins, I built hog fences, I built uh, uh, all I, I put everything in for him, you know, and I put farrowing units in. I did all that when I was little, huh. and my dad let me do it. He let me he because I was learning. But I, there were times when i go over the sale barn, I remember being nine, 10 years old, going over to the sale barn, just sitting there, told Kenny, I want to buy some hogs today. I got, I got this much money and I want to buy this and help me. So he'd help me. So here came 27 feeder pigs. He was a little and entrepreneur, huh? he would like look at me and he kind of nod his head. Okay. And which means, yeah, go ahead and start bidding on these. If these are what you want, these look good. I think you could make money on these. He, that, I knew what that nod meant. And sure enough, hit twenty-five, twenty-one ahead, twenty-one. hoop, you know, somebody up there bidding, and then I'd have my little card, and I'd I'd nod my head, you know, it's like I'm a big time. And Kenny, if, he, if I was going too high, he'd just kind of look at me, and I'd see him kind of shake his head no, and I'd stop. But if he didn't say anything to me, I kept going. Man, I bought hundreds ahead.
1: That's amazing. Yep,
0: and then they'd load them up for me, take them over to my house, unload them for me, and then I'd go down and get all my stuff, and I'd I'd. Uh, I'd raise them to be butcher hogs, and I'd send them back over and sell them, make a pile of money. How many pigs did you have? Oh, during the course of the years, probably from age six all the way up to age 15. Two, 300 head. Wow. 400 head. Oh, yeah. Just buying and selling. But then I'd go over also. You know, I'd go over and load cattle trucks. If I see a truck drive up there and Kenny wasn't there, I'd run over and I'd unload him. I'd put him in a pen. I'd write up the ticket and I'd pin the ticket on the door for Kenny. And I was his guy. You know, I was, I was a guy. So Kenny, I used to go with Kenny all the time. We'd go to Sabetha, We'd go to Maryville. We'd go to Tecumseh. You know, we'd buy stuff. <laughs> That's really neat. Yeah, it was fun. And I'll tell you a cool thing. Just before he died... His family was having a big cattle sale Now at was the sale barn. And so they called me and said Kenny was going to go. And I said, well, tell Kenny I'm going to come down there. And so uh, Kenny and I, about halfway through, I said, hey, Kenny, want to go in the back? Check out some of the stock. He goes, yeah, let's go. So me and Kenny, there I was, me and Kenny walking around in the back of the Beatrice Sale Barn, and he's telling me, "Now these cattle here, these are good." You know, he's still doing his thing. Oh, it was awesome. He was great, but he, uh, yeah, but that, he was my adopted grandpa. Huh.
1: You, uh, your introduction to Nebraska football came kind of in the glory years. Uh, you remember, you remember listening to Bremser on the
0: radio. Oh my gosh, I have been as long early as I can remember. I would say 1969, because I remember Devaney. I totally remember Devaney. So I would say probably the time when I was... uh, I'd say 1970 start my first memories of where, because, you know, you're locked in. Right. You can almost tell. As my wife gets mad, upset at me sometimes because she go, remember when we were over? I go, no, I can't remember that. <laughs> but I remember when Nebraska, you know, uh, beat Texas A&M in the kickoff classic. I right. know exactly where I was and what the score was. Um, uh, yeah, so that all started at a young age, and I always remember uh, the commercials. Uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart. Nebraska is number one, and so is Nebraska Furniture Mart. You know what I mean? Right. So those memories started in 1970, 71, and it's the diehard fan. We would, it would be on everywhere in Pawnee City. I mean, be mowing the lawn. You know, you'd have your, head, you'd have your little AM headset on and, and never, ever went to a game, but always heard Lyle Bremser faithfully on Saturdays. Uh-huh yeah it was awesome did
1: you ever do your own play by play I mean I just uh, you know no my brother did Okay.
0: my brother always wanted to be a play by play guy so my brother would he would he would do his own I came across a recording I have all these old tapes and I came across a recording from 1976 of my brother um, broadcasting a Nebraska basketball game (laughs) it's
1: hilarious is he doing it he's doing it at the game
0: no, he was, he had the game taped, Oh, you know, and you can hear the, but my brother would tape over That's there. Great. Yeah. My brother was doing over. It. He was, he was hilarious. That's he great. made all kinds of That's funny great. tapes.
1: Yeah. You, 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 uh, you forget just how important the radio stuff was
0: back then. Yeah. It was super important. Radio was, yeah. Radio was instrumental in my career, you know, cause I, I did everything. When people were going to New York and LA, I was in Florida and I was getting popular By the radio. I was getting my name out on radio. Radio's always been a important part. But as far as the games and the Nebraska games, radio was huge. And you know, when I first moved to Florida, I couldn't get the Nebraska games anymore. So I would call in the late eighties, in the mid eighties, I would call Colleen. In uh, say 1980, I, I don't know when the Funny Bone opened. It had to have been 89, 90, 91, 88. I know it's been around a long time, but I used to call Colleen the Funny Bone. And she would turn the radio on and set the phone by really? the radio. And I listened to the entire Nebraska game over the phone that Colleen had done. And every now and then she'd go, You still there? I'm come, put it out, put it out, put it out. All right, she'd put it down. <laughs> you know, she'd always pick it up like on a third and four. Colleen, it's third and four. Right. So yeah, I listened to man. I bet I listened to uh, twenty games through yeah, the fo- through the phone at the Omaha Fun Bowl. hmm Didn't want to miss it. And then when I moved to Florida, I was the only guy. I mean, I always I had I loved big trucks so. You know, I always had a big old truck and I always had Nebraska stickers and a Husker plate and driving around Florida, Florida state country, you know, UCF country with all my Nebraska stuff. And I put in a sport court, a Nebraska sport court, all red Huskers, big red end in the middle. And I was right in the swamp. I was right in by Lake Jessup, which is the swamp of Florida. But if you took that flight line flying in over Sanford towards International Airport, like when I flew home from Delta from Atlanta, see it. oh, you'd see it. You'd look down, you'd see nothing but water and trees, and then all of a sudden, what is that? And you just see this bread end. That's awesome. Oh yeah.
1: You you, I mean, I'm trying to imagine. I'm from a town of 400 people, Rising the City, uh, smaller than Pawnee City, and man, to you're grow,
0: always bragging about your town. To grow
1: <laughs> up in that, and then like. To get displaced at 16 years old yeah your, your dad moved his family to florida yeah
0: west palm beach
1: what a, what a culture shock
0: hated it yeah
1: you remember you remember your dad telling you we're moving yeah
0: and i hated it and i remember my band teacher mike reinhardt who now sells insurance somewhere in lincoln i would love to say hi to him i remember him making a bid for me to stay he'd take care of me really? And but he because I was good I was in the band and I loved playing in the band. You know, he was kind of a half kidding, but he was kind of hey you know he wants to stay you know he's, you know okay. one of those deals. And Kenny wanted me to stay. Kenny was making a bid for me to and my I wanted to stay because Kenny was talk said he would talk to the people at the Wilson Hog Market and I could be the manager of the Wilson Hog Market. Really. That's And I wanted to stay so I could work at the Wilson Hog Market. I'm glad I didn't. Right. <laughs> think, how, think how different your life would be. It's not there anymore. Right. But I remember that. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen. My parents weren't going to leave me behind. But we went to West Palm Beach. And West Palm Beach now, when you think of West Palm Beach, is huge. Right. But when I moved to West Palm Beach, it was still fairly small. I boarded horses out in Wellington. Um, there was nothing on the other side of the turnpike because they put the turnpike in because they wanted to be away from everything. That's, now it's all city. The turnpike's like in the middle of the city. Right. But there used to be nothing out there when I first moved there in 1970, the summer of 78. Um, so... Uh, when I first moved down there, I didn't like it. This was a church opportunity. I take went and you know, right? my, my dad was the got hired as the elementary principal at King's Academy. Okay. The fifth largest Christian school in the United States. Okay. And I hated it. I didn't know anybody. And, <laughs> and I gravitated to the country kids because I was a livestock kid. Yeah. But uh, some of the kids that went to school there were from... The, from out by Wellington right? and they had horses and what a couple of the kids that I hung with, they had their dad had cattle. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but Florida at one time, uh, probably about 10 years ago was the number one cattle producing state in the United States. So a lot of ranches, a lot of cattle, a lot of horses. So I gravitated with those FFA kids that went to school there. So those, I mean, when I met some of them, it was pretty cool because I said, hey, there's country kids now. There's kids that grew up like I did. Right. Then um, I noticed that there was a lot of pretty girls in <laughs> Florida and there's more than eight in my class. Right. And uh, then I started liking it. You know, you get hungry, there's a 7-Eleven right down the road. Winter, so the, winters the, were a little easier too. Yeah, and winters were easier. Oh yeah. I mean that that was awesome. So, you know, you're always wearing shorts. I quit wearing pants. I just wore shorts everywhere. I don't think I owned a pair of pants after I moved to Florida. So, yeah, I loved it.
1: Huh. Uh when did you realize the comedy was what you wanted to do?
0: Um when I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> I was an idiot. <laughs> um I went to college in Georgia and I only went there because all my friends were going to school there. Baptist college. Yeah. I was just kind of tossing and turning. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went to Baptist University. I thought about maybe, oh, I really admired my youth pastor. I liked him a lot. So I think, you know, and I love baseball. I think I want to do what he does. I think I want to be a youth pastor and a baseball coach just like him. So I went to Baptist University with all my buddies and, uh, Then uh, I started, uh, I set out a semester because I didn't want to work while I played baseball. Mm. I started bellhopping at the Hyatt Palm Beaches. And I was a huge Braves fan. I was a Braves fan in the 70s. You know, my grandma used to watch them on WTCG before it became WTBS. Before TBS. Yeah. And uh, so I was always a big Braves fan. Well, I was working at the hotel where the Braves stayed. And I just, you know, it was awesome. So I bought me some season. I, I got a job there, and I bought me some season tickets. I bought four. Wow! Yeah. That's where I met Foxworthy. And so Jeff and I, for two weeks in a row, he'd come down work the comedy corner, and we'd always go to Braves games. But anyway, I digress. Um, uh, I was dry. I would always drive the hotel van. Um, I started making so much money as a bellhop because it was good. I'm good with people and I right. made them laugh. And so I was getting tips like crazy. I just never went back to school. I didn't, you know, this is what I, I like doing this. I like, you know, I like the hotel business. I think it's awesome. I'm meeting a lot of people. I'm getting a lot of job offers from people that stay here that have businesses. Um, so I just never went back to school play baseball or anything and i had no money it was you know i was living off my mom sent me 20 bucks a week and i'd have an odd jobs up there you know as they worked at a laundromat they made it so i could get through school but here i'm making tons of cash well i always picked up the airline crews from the airport and i would just crack jokes all the time make them laugh and they always would request hey hey have dan come get us at the airport is dan there this week you know And they would always say, "Man, you should be a comedian. You should be a comedian." Everybody said you should be a comedian. I never thought about it before, and then that's when the comedy craze first started. For comedy clubs started cropping up in the mid '80s. You know, I mean, you had the stable ones that were open in the late '70s, like Catch a Rising Star and the Comic Strip in Fort Lauderdale. So you had some that have already been around since the late '70s, but I didn't know about them. So they had a they had a comedy night. That was the big promotion. Radio station started doing an open night, comedy night, at a bar. So my friends said you should go on stage, man, it'd be fun. So I invited my brother, my sister, and a bunch of my friends from the hotel, and they were gonna have a comedy night. I went up at a comedy night at Houlihan's, Bar and Grill, the Mall, Palm Beach Mall, West Palm Beach, Florida. I almost backed out. This is why I always tell everybody, if you want to do something, do it. Because if you back out, you'll never do it again. And you'll always wonder what would have happened if I would have done that. And I almost backed out because there were guys down there with note cards and clipboards and they're going over notes and they're dressed up in suits. And and I got down there and I told my buddy John, I started freaking out. And I said, Man, there's professional comedians. There's guys that do this for a living here. I thought this was an open mic night. <laughs> And he goes, I said, I'm not going up. He says, oh, man, all your friends are here. You got to go up. I go, John, I can't go up. I can't do it. I mean, I'm going to get embarrassed. I'm scared, you know? And he's like, uh, well, let's see how the first couple of guys the first couple of guys I think good he goes you're funny man just do what you're gonna do you know and I didn't know what I was doing I had a little prop whistle that I'd make a funny sound if I did <laughs> so I had my I, I had a boom box with me that had my own applause and laughter on it I had a cut off buckwheat t-shirt and a David Lee Roth hat and I had a weekly world news I was gonna read some clippings and make fun of you know a yeah. cigar I had nothing planned. I was just going to be goofy. Well, the first guy goes. So I said, okay, I'll see how the first guy is. And I was, if he was good, honestly, I, was, I wasn't going on. I was just going to walk out. He wasn't very good. And it gave me confidence. So I always tell everybody, I owe my whole career to a guy named Todd Vidham, because he was one of the guys in the suits with, with the note cards that I thought was a professional. And he, he tanked. So he gave me confidence to go up. Todd said, Todd's a buddy of mine. He's a great actor. He does a lot of local theater, you know, so I don't, I'm not going to give him any grief. But How he, did you do? I thought I did great. I, I mean, it was funny. People were laughing. Now, if I went back and listened to it now, it'd be like, oh, my gosh, how bad is this? Right. Now that I know what I'm doing. Right. But from I thought it was good at the time, you know, but I, but I got hooked. That was fun. Oh, man, that was a good, just the rush of the crowd laughing at me. Right. And then about, uh, then I heard Rumor. Hey, there's a comedy club opening up in, in West Palm. Get out of here. Really? So the first night, the grand opening, I went because I wanted to check it out. And I met the doorman that they hired. His name is Tom Ryan. And he wanted to be a comedian too. He moved down from Philadelphia. He was living in West Palm Beach and he wanted to be a comedian. So he got a job. as a doorman. So he could get on stage. And I met Tom. And I told him I wanted to be a comedian. And I was the only one he knew. He was the only one I knew. And we sat in the back and we just, we were talking and hanging out and watching the show. And we just got to become really good friends. And Tom Ryan lives in New York City. He's a writer, He's been on Letterman a couple of times. Tom is always a curmudgeon. Tom always hated going on stage, but he knew he had to. And he's completely politically opposite me. We don't agree on anything. But I love him like a brother. I've known Tom forever, and uh, so yeah. So we hung it. That was my life from that point on. How did you
1: get? That was my life. How did you get good at it?
0: Like just watching other comedians and uh, getting advice from other comedians, um, studying their timing, studying how they do it. You know, like you didn't realize, like you would go see the show, man. I was so quick man I wish I could be that quick I mean just to come up and then he watched the next show wait a minute it's the same he just did the same I thought he just thought of that he does that in his act Uh so that's when you realize you can make something look like you just thought it up for the first time so I just you know a lot of people like I've always been outgoing I've always uh, liked people I've always enjoyed being around people and so I was never a jerk. I what was like,
1: the toughest part of it for you? I mean, is it, <laughs> is it, is it the crowds? Is it, is it no one, uh, is it dealing with failure? I mean, what, what is the, No, what, failure makes you,
0: failure, uh, failure, after you bomb the first couple of times, it sucks, but you get it. Bombing makes you better. Huh. I mean, it makes you better. I don't know any comedian that has never gone on stage and had a great show the entire time that from the beginning to the end, they're always good. No. You always learn and you're always getting better. You always work. Like, comedians hate doing a room where there's eight people. Comedians hate doing a room where there's nothing but people talking. Comedians hate doing... You hate it. But you know what? You learn from each one of those experiences how to deal in every situation and every climate. So there's not any show that you could put me on now that I have not had the experience before. So you learn how to deal with it, and you know what to expect. So, yeah, you're always... Early on, you face everything, and you learn from those experiences. There's... You learn from failure. Failure is one of the best things for a comedian because you learn from those experiences. If you don't fail, you're not going to learn from it.
1: Does your, does your, uh, I think the answer is yes, but did, did you find that your act was universal? Uh, like did it, or did you have to cater it to different audiences? You know, I was mean, some, I watched some guys and I'm like, okay, you're good because of the audience that you're in front of. Right. If you go in front of a different audience, nobody's laughing at that. Right. Uh you seem to be more universal. Did you have to cater it or not? No, my
0: my act has always been universal because when I watched comedians, I was a uni- I was a universal audience. I had a certain sense of humor and certain comedians, certain jokes would do that sense of humor. Um yeah, completely universal. I do Joe I just do nonsensical one liner jokes. Right. Um I'm kinda like You know, Steve Martin used to do really smart material and he used to do really stupid material. And his attitude, which he brought, he was just this big, goofy, happy, dumb guy. And that's kind of like what I like. You know, I like doing a one-liner where you go, man, that is a really clever one-liner. And then I like to do fart jokes. Everybody laughs at goofy stuff. Just stoop. Steve Martin when he was being goofy. I mean, it was the dumbest stuff, but it was funny. Just the way he delivered it. It was fun. Chris Farley. Yeah, Chris Farley. Chris Farley did some of the dumbest humor in his movies, but just the way he did it, it's just funny. Adam Sandler. How do you explain Adam Sandler? His films are dumb, but he's funny. It's just the way he does it is funny. It's just like me. I like that stuff. That's universal stuff. I mean, people can laugh at that stuff. And
1: the funny part is, sometimes people think that they're above that kind of humor. Nobody's above it.
0: And nobody's above it. That's, that's another thing. Nobody is above any uh, that kind of humor. Nobody. I can do a corporate event, and I can do a kid's party, and I'm telling you right now, adults are laughing at the same kind of stuff it's just you know that's how i've always liked to do my act i just i go on stage and i do that makes me laugh and if it's making me laugh i know it's going to make my audience laugh
1: i was going to say i've heard i've heard people say this about writing too but sometimes you're you're the best you're the best judge of your material like you're if you think it's funny if if you think it's interesting you know everybody else is going to too
0: like well that's i don't think that's really okay. the case for everything because uh,
1: but are you are you a good judge of your material?
0: It's the dep- yeah i'm a, i'm a good judge of my material. Okay. I i know because i like to think that my crowd and me pretty much laugh at the same kind of stuff. Right. So if it makes me laugh, I'm pretty much sure now it's going to make my crowd laugh because they've had, they've been with me this long a time. They know, they laugh at what I do. So I kind of know what they're going to like. Early on, you didn't really know because you didn't develop your act and you didn't develop a following to what you know what they're going to laugh at. Yeah. You know, like there's certain jokes. It's like Foxworthy says. Foxworthy says, if he took my material, he wouldn't get any laughs with it. <laughs> You know, he wouldn't. He just couldn't do it. He can't do because it's in the delivery and the person telling the joke. Sometimes Jeff and I will write a joke and he'll write a joke and go, man, I'm going to give this to Dan. He'll get a laugh with this. I won't get a laugh with it. You know, and I'll write a joke and I just can't get it to work. And I think it's funny, but it's not me, but it's funny. I'm going to give this to Jeff because he'll make a laugh. Case in point, he wrote it. Have you ever heard my, my classic bit? poop lasagna. Yeah. Okay, poop lasagna is so stupid, but it's funny. That's Jeff's joke. Really? But Jeff said there's no way his crowd is going to let him get away with telling a poop lasagna joke. Me? I can do it. I wrote a joke about my neighbor's freaking out because he thought he he's got visited by space aliens in the middle of the night because there's three round circles perfectly round circles and the grass is down something has landed in his yard and made these little teeny crop circles well somebody stole this trash cans. <laughs> okay i i wrote that and i said that's hilarious i did it twice i just couldn't deliver it to where it got a laugh jeff killed with it because it was more his style of humor poop lasagna totally my style of humor um so there's some there's some jokes. I would say you're kind of you're seventy five percent, eighty percent right. If I think of a joke, I'm gonna go, oh man, my crowd's gonna dig this joke. And there's another joke I'll go, man, I don't know if they're gonna laugh at that. It makes me laugh, but I don't know if they're gonna get it or not. Well, I'm gonna try it. So it's not a, it's not a a ten it's not a hundred percent hit rate that I'm gonna come up with something they're gonna laugh at. But for the most part. I think I know my audience enough to where, yes, this is going to work. Do
1: you change it as you go? I mean, I know you come up with different jokes, but, but do, you, do you tell a joke 12 times and then you the 13th time you're like, oh, it's a little better with this tweak?
0: Yeah, there's certain jokes that I really like that I wish got bigger laughs. And I'll try it and I'll try it and I'll try it. And it's like, well, and then all of a sudden, well, let me try it here. I always tell everybody my jokes are. I always put everything to baseball. I got a minor league system and I got a pro system. Huh. So if this joke's not getting the response it's supposed to get, it goes back to the minor leagues for a little bit more tweaking. <laughs> Sometimes the joke, all it takes for that joke to take off is changes order in the lineup. He may not be a good leadoff hitter, but that boy comes up big on as an eighth hitter, as a seventh hitter. A lot of times that works too. You just move the joke to a different slot. And it just, for some reason, it pops. There's no explanation. It's the same joke. You tell it the same way. It's just following something else that makes it funnier. There's certain jokes that you'll think will never work. And then the 14th time you put it in a different order and it works. I have no idea why that is. Man, I saved my jokes. So there's jokes that I wrote in 2002 that just sucks. This joke sucks. All of a sudden, in 2017, that's a funny joke. I don't, you know, so you'll add that. I keep all my jokes. I have notebooks of jokes.
1: I was just going to ask you that. You just you just document them and put them in... Thousands. Room. Really?
0: Mm-hmm. I got thousands of them <laughs> that I can just pull out and go, oh, let me try this one this time. I'll try that one.
1: Is it addictive? Totally. Like, how do you turn it off?
0: Uh, well, you're constantly in... Uh, All comedians are different. There's quiet comedians, there's shy comedians, there's super serious comedians, like Steve Martin. Steve Martin turns it on on stage. The rest of the time, they say Steve Martin's pretty boring. You know, when I did my interview for 60 Minutes, I think they said I was only like the second guy, stand-up comedian, 60 Minutes, ever did a profile on. And I said, man, you didn't even do Steve Martin? And Bob Simon said, oh, he's a boring interview. No. It would be boring that people wouldn't like it. He's boring. There's nothing really unless he's on stage. It's pretty boring, unless you want to hear about art and banjo. You know? Sure. And it's like, wow, no kidding. So um so me, I'm, I'm for uh I'm always I'm a happy guy. But I there's love, a, there's an adrenaline
1: high right. when you're on stage and you're making people laugh and you're right. doing it, you know, two hours a day, two hundred and fifty nights a year. Right. Can you shut it off, or do you need? That? I think you, some comedians need...
0: shut off. I think sometimes you want to shut up. But whenever you're out in public, people you're, you're the you're Larry the Cable Guy, so people expect you to be funny. And I'm not funny 24 hours a day. But as far as I can remember, ever since I was a little kid, I always like I always say something. I like saying something funny. I'm I'm always in. I'm just, that's just how I'm made. Yeah. I'm just made that way. So.
1: Do you miss it? Like when you're not on the road for three months, do you miss
0: it? I do miss it, but I like being with my family. Um, I have different priorities now now that I'm married with kids I don't tour as much I don't want to tour as much I like hanging with Kara I like hanging with the kids I like being able to travel and do stuff with them I like being able to just pick up and go golf somewhere for four or five days and come back home Uh, I don't miss it at all you know I miss uh, it's like I told Kara I said at some point I'd like to just kind of I don't want to be that 88 year old guy staying in a hotel that's got a gig tomorrow night down at the you know Stitches Right. you know um so I do, um, I'm to the point now where I make my own schedule. Uh, I do 30 dates a year. That's all I want to do. And I, I uh, get dates around um, golf places. All these places have good courses. Like certain casinos have great golf courses. I got a great um, uh, uh, relationship with casinos. You know, my crowds come out. They like to drink. They, you know, they make money on them. So, we'll take 30 dates and I'll scatter them throughout the course of the year so that I'm always doing something every month. Right. You know, sometimes I'll go a month or two without doing anything. Then I get itchy because I'll think of a joke. Oh, this is funny. I can't wait to do this joke. There'll come a time, I think, where I'm I'm done with it, but you're always like, I always like writing jokes and doing jokes. It's like when Johnny Carson retired. Johnny Carson started sending jokes to Letterman so he could do the jokes. Yeah. I think you're always going to be in that mode because that's all I know. That's all I've known. Hey, that's why you have Twitter. Yeah, that's why you got Twitter. <laughs> that's why you got social media. Uh, but that's all I've known, you know. So um, it's hard to just say I'm not doing it anymore. I think I'll just gradually... I think, the, the, I think uh, the society will tell you when it's time to kind of hang it up too. Like, we're getting so politically correct. You can't do anything anymore. You know, my buddy just got fired from Sirius Radio, Nick DiPaolo, for sending out a tweet that isn't half as bad as half of everybody else's tweets. I don't. Know, I think they just didn't like politics. I yeah. don't know. So, you know, as time goes on and people will kind of dictate, uh, you know, I'm not going to go out there and work for, you know. You're not going to
1: do the Stanton
0: County Fair? No, I like doing fairs. That's my, That's my crowd. I love fairs. I love doing county fairs. I'm I'm not going to go back And uh, You'll see uh, Larry the Cable Guy uh, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday Down at the Pickle Factory I'm not doing that You know Um, If it's not If I'm not going to do theaters And arenas I'm not going to do it anymore Because I don't want to You know Like I said I don't want to be on the road doing. I don't need to do it Yeah So why do it Right you know, if I want to write jokes, oh, and uh, there's a bunch of young comics I know coming up that I like, that I got good relationships with, hey, here's a joke. Do this joke, man. You'll love this joke. You know, and I'll probably just do stuff like that. It's just, I've had a great career. It's been a long, I mean, 30 years professionally.
1: Yeah, you're, I was going to ask you, your first night in West Palm, that, that night where you didn't know whether you are going to go up on stage, Yeah. what, what year was that?
0: 1985. Wow. So that's 33 years. Professionally, I quit my job May of 1988 at the Hyatt Regency. And I never even officially quit. I took a leave of absence. (laughs) Hey,
1: you could go back.
0: I know I could go back. They were really cool to me. The Hyatt was like, man, this is cool. You're trying to be a comedian, you know. Give it a shot. If it doesn't work, you're always welcome back. Don't quit. We'll give you a leave of absence. That's what they told me. And I just never went back. So May will be my going on to my thirtieth year of, of so I'm gonna do another, you know that'll be I'm gonna get thirty complete in, yeah, and then I'll then I'll probably start cutting back a little bit more.
1: Uh, I want to ask you some quick hitters. Yep. Uh, you played high school football. Yeah. For lineman. Yes. At uh at Berean Christian, right? Horrible.
0: I was horrible. I hated it. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I was never a big uh, impact guy. I enjoyed it, it was fun, but yeah. You were
1: so bad that they dissolved the program after you
0: left. (laughs) Who you been talking to? (laughs) You're absolutely right. But they
1: brought it back a couple years ago. Yeah. And you helped them restart
0: it. Yeah, I did. I helped them restart it. We bought them the helmets and the uniforms and the whole deal. So they all, I got a signed helmet from all that first team from Berean Christian that's down in my office. So yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed doing that. How are they doing? You know. You know what they were doing? Yeah, they're doing all right. It's a much bigger school than when I went there. Yeah. When I went there, we the school was at the church, and they had classrooms at the church. Now they've got seventy acres, and I mean it's a big school. So yeah, I, I uh, was present for their first game. They won their first game. As a matter of fact, from what I understand. Uh, They come out on the field, they're brand new spanking Bulldog uniforms, we were the Patriots when I was there, they were Bulldogs now, orange and black, I mean, they looked good, they came running out on the field, and opening kickoff, they took it for a touchdown. Really? Yeah, in that first first season, so, yeah, that was fun, that was Berean, yeah, that's where I graduated from, I went to Kings Academy, left there and went to Berean, but I did play baseball.
1: You played
0: there you played baseball and then you played in college too yes I did and I never I played baseball at Berean at I was an outfielder I could, it was never a good hitter but I had a glove man I could catch anything I could scoop at first I'm not tooting my own horn here but I I, I could glove that's all I did you know I when I first moved to Florida and I'm gonna tell all kids that want to get good in baseball you know how to do it move to Florida well Florida helps we had a carport And when I first moved down there, I didn't know anybody. And I loved baseball and I had a little mitt. And I took a golf ball and I threw it against the carport and I fielded a golf ball for hours and hours and hours. And I could catch a golf ball. I could follow that golf ball. So when I went to play baseball, I was used to snagging golf balls. I mean, I'd throw them hard. I mean, I just wouldn't toss it because I wanted to make good scoops. And so when I went out to play baseball, that thing was huge I, I can catch a golf ball i can catch this thing right. and it was great and then when i went to college um we were snagging fly balls i was the only left-handed guy on the team at baptist university of america smallest school in division three and uh i threw i caught a. I caught a uh, outf- i was snagging great in the outfield i caught one and i fired it to home plate on a line drive
1: you were bo jackson
0: Yeah, right? And my coach goes, Whitney, come here! (laughs) So I went right in he goes, Holy mackerel! He goes, have you ever pitched? I said, I don't know how to pitch. Are you kidding me? He goes, I'm going to make you a pitcher. Because anybody that can throw it from the outfield on a line drive beeline to the catcher is going to be a pitcher for me. So we went in every morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. We went into the chapel and he cleared the chairs. He put down a fake... He put down a fake mound. We had a fake mound. Put down a fake mound, and we, he just taught me how to pitch.
1: Were you breaking stained
0: glass windows? No, no. We were. I was throwing pretty good, so I pitched for a couple years. I loved it.
1: That's a good place to wrap it up. Except, as Larry stands up and I start packing my stuff, I think of a sudden, obvious question. And what's the best joke you ever told? Oh man! What's your man. favorite joke you've ever
0: told? That I wrote? Yeah. Uh, man there's been so many um, I think probably the most the ones that were fun to do that I enjoyed were uh, the edible under joke <laughs> you ever seen them edible eating britches But tell you what I bought five pairs of strawberry eating britches for my wife for her birthday the other day and I bought five because I always end up eating a couple pairs on the way to the house <laughs> I got them biscuits and gravy ones too, but they've had to go on, you know this. Then there was one of them, they the big guy one time put on them strawberry britches. Some bitches give me diabetes. <laughs> 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 you know? I mean, those were always funny. Um, then, you know, I always got in a lot of trouble because I would do But I think probably one of my other favorite jokes was I think this joke is so clever. Of course, I don't. I never get credit for clever jokes, right? Because I got I do fart jokes and titty jokes, but I surround clever jokes with them. But I always thought this was one of my most clever jokes. Uh, Brokeback Mountain, gay cowboys. Are you kidding me? If John Wayne was alive today; he'd have a patch over both eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that joke. And the other joke that I love and. So, and now, this is another one. This is a clever joke. I used to be a lifeguard till some blue kid got me fired. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was a great joke, too. trying right. to think what I'm doing now that I love doing. There's certain jokes that you can't wait to tell.
1: I bet. You know, and... You uh, can't wait for that moment in the show when you get to that. When you get to
0: this certain joke. I wrote a new one about... Uh, My sister, she's four foot 10, 295 pounds. She used to model decoy stumps at the best Pro Shops and, <laughs> and, uh, she was a big and I remember in high school, her locker had a crisper. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, but we had uh, <laughs> I go, but she went to college with us. She was part of the all female. They were all overweight in that sorority. What was the name of that sorority? Uh, oh, Thelma <laughs> Aetate. I mean,
1: those are the kind of jokes I love kind of, there's one after another. well that's
0: what I mean like you, you get to a punchline and you think that's it and then there's like another one two seconds later That's hey what, I gotta tell you the, what I like about check it. these out I got uh, I wrote these down in my notes we got uh, I'm roasting Alice Cooper oh yeah for his 70th birthday and there's a bunch <laughs> of people gonna be there but I got uh us see if I can find these there's a bunch of people going to be there, but I got these written down. Uh, 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 let me see. We got members here, because you got a ton of people out right it. We got members here from, uh, well first I want to go up and go, wow, look at all these look at all these celebrities here. It's a regular who's who, uh, who's not working. I <coughs> know. Uh, we got members here from Kiss, Queensryche, Alice Cooper, No Doubt, The Tubes. Who's working the fairs this week? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be funny, and then uh, oh, what is Don Felder from the Eagles is there? So I'm gonna go. Uh, I was just at the fair the other day. I won some uh, some game at the carnival. and The carny asked me to pick anything I wanted on the bottom shelf, so I got these Eagles tickets. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Don Felder's here from the Eagles. You know, I was just listening to music today. I was I got stuck in the elevator. Alice is still very popular. People still come up to Alice Cooper and ask him for his autograph. Unfortunately, it's because they think he's Kellyanne Conway.
1: Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can access our whole library of episodes at omaha.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have feedback or suggestions on future podcasts, please email me at dirk.com period chatawain at owh.com if you enjoyed this episode or any others please subscribe and write a review we'll see you next week